I learned a tremendous amount from them. And to be in a family of uh, freelance artists, I mean, you, you learn a way of life in that environment. And the way of life that you learn is that we never have much money, but we, you know, always eat well and we always figure out ways to get it done. And we're always very responsible with money. You have to be responsible with money. You know, my mother used to say, she goes, oh, these bankers. You know, you'd go to a bank, try to get a bank loan, and they wouldn't give it to you because you're an artist. And she's like, are you kidding me? You think we're going to default on something because we're artists? We're the ones that are, have learned how to put together something from nothing. I mean, uh, you've got to be worried about the guy who's got the job in an office and then suddenly loses that job. That's who you should be worried about because that's the guy that's going to default on his mortgage, not us. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leia Roseman. Matt Zimbel is a percussionist with the band Manteca and also an award-winning writer, producer, documentary filmmaker, artistic director, broadcast executive, and radio and TV host. In this fascinating episode, he shares his insights gained from a wealth of experience across the music industry. We speak near the beginning about his father, the photographer George Zimbel, who died this past January 2023, after we recorded the episode. We talk about the beautiful documentary film Zimbalism that Matt made with director Jean-Francois Graton. Matt offered that the trailer for Zimbalism, which features the music of Manteca, could be used in this episode. He has also generously let me weave in a pre-release of a fantastic new percussion piece with Art Avalos, which will appear on Manteca's upcoming Offspring project. Matt Zimbal, thanks for joining me today. It's a wonderful pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So since I discovered your band Manteca through Mark Ferguson, I've just enjoyed listening to you so much and it always puts me in a good mood. And then when you agreed to record this conversation with me, you know, I started to research your life and career and I was a bit overwhelmed because you've just had, you're, you're, you're having such an amazing broadcast career. It's so varied and there's so much to talk about. But let's talk about the band Osa. Oh, what is it? Osabisa. How do you pronounce it? Osabisa. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. Wow. So you're going right back to the one of the source materials for me. Is, is I just discovered this record when I was, I guess, sixteen or seventeen years old, which is quite a while ago, and I love what they were doing. It was a record that was made in England, and it was a bunch of musicians from different parts of Africa. Um, and they had kind of taken jazz and pop and rock and, and mixed it all up. And it was, it was very innovative and it was very much inspirational to me at that particular time. I believe they're still recording. I haven't really been following them that much, but it was just such a unique sound. I had ne never heard anything like it before. And at the time, I was living in Prince Edward Island, so certainly <laughs> that was a, a long way away from... Um, a long way away from London, England, that's for sure. But it was very inspirational. I have to say, you know, one thing about, you know, learning about music in PEI was that at the time, the CBC uh, had a show, a jazz show. And I think that a lot of um, maritime musicians, it was like one of the few ways that we were exposed to music other than pop music, which was being played by our local radio stations and country music to some degree. But I think a lot of that really came from the CBC. And it was, I remember hearing the first time I heard Eddie Harris and Les McCann, I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is incredible music. And 
you know, now what happens with the CBC is uh, I call it, they, they have created a new form of jazz on the CBC. I call it emergency jazz because the only time you hear jazz on the CBC is when they lose the signal. So, like, if you get in the car at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you turn on, or two, let's say 2.06, because the news is at 2 o'clock and at the top of the hour, as they say. You turn the radio on. If they're playing jazz, it's, you can be sure that they have lost their signal. So, you know, you've heard of bebop and swing, and now we can have emergency jazz. Well, jazz is one of the... Um the styles of music I love the most and you know people will notice on this series there's a lot of jazz musicians and actually was listening to the CBC growing up mostly where I heard most of my jazz I think at first. You mentioned Les McCann and Eddie Harris and I had read a 2013 uh, interview with you where you talked about them as inspiration so I was looking them up when those musicians I haven't heard of I'm always curious. So Eddie Harris did you know he combined instruments in strange ways? Yes of course. <laughs> But I mean, I'm just surprised that you did the, this depth of research. You really do your homework, don't you? Well, the thing about you, Matt, is you're a published author and you've done all these, you know, broadcast media, podcast or radio, but information about you as a musician is not that available. So well, that's interesting. <laughs> I had to figure out how did you drop out of school in PEI and then form this band a few years later. So let's talk about that. Okay, okay. Uh, well, I dropped out of school because I was just bored out of my mind. I mean, I was just like, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I was just going absolutely crazy because it was just boring. I moved from New York to PEI when I was 14 years old. And I mean, the education system in New York is not great because, I mean, by the time I came to Canada, I thought everybody in Canada spoke French. So, you know, I, there's no way we can say that New York had a great educational system, but PEI's was even worse. So I just got bored and I quit and soon realized that, you know, there was nobody more popular in the neighborhood than, an, than a 14-year-old a, a kid who could work and wasn't going to school. I mean, I, every farmer, every fisherman within 100 miles was like, hey, you want a job? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I took a job on a farm and, and you know, made $80 uh, every two weeks. But it was only a 50-hour week, so that was cool. And, uh, and uh, so that's how I, you know, I started um, saving up to, to buy percussion instruments. And I was practicing and you know, learning as much as I could off of records and stuff like that. And then I took some lessons from a guy named Jim, Jim Faraday, who was, a, at, uh, the, um, he was the percussionist in the pit in, at Confederation Center in Charlottetown. And uh, so that's how I, I got into percussion and, and you know, just listening to records and learning what I could and studying a little bit. And then I ended up studying, when I moved to Montreal, I studied with uh, Dito Morris and John Rudell, really wonderful conga players that uh, were able to teach me some stuff. So that's kind of the, you know, the educational part of it. And But how to start the band was just basically, if you're a percussionist, you know, you end up in the world of salsa and, and mambo and Latin music. And um, we ended up, there's a bunch of people in Toronto who started a band and they invited me to play in that band. It was called Armando's Orchestra. And um, uh, there was a disagreements on the way things should go. And so that band kind of split up and, and, and we started Manteca out of that with a number of the people that were in that band. 
and um, and that's lasted for forty three years now. Amazing, really. It it really is amazing. <laughs> so you do mostly hand percussion, but I see a drum set behind you as well. Yeah, I I, I do that as a hobby, not as a professional instrument. It's yeah. just to play time and warm up and do stuff like that. But I I don't I don't play drums. These conga players. I'm not that... licensed to play drums. <laughs> Matt has generously shared a great percussion piece, which is premiering on this podcast, Hit Record, written and performed by Matt Zimbel and Art Avalos. It will appear on Monteca's upcoming Offspring Project album. Yeah, I just realized that um, uh, it's not a video clip, it's only an audio clip. Uh, it's just, it's a little one minute thing. We were just playing in the studio one day uh, when we were doing our new record, and um, I just asked the engineer to... Uh, Art and I were just by ourselves playing, and I said, could you just roll? And he rolled, and we just got this sweet little groove going, and then we did one pass of overdubs on it. Art played the udu, and I played the talking drum, and, and it's what it is. It's nothing, it's nothing fancy. It's just this little quiet percussion piece. It's a minute long. Wonderful. Thanks. These uh, conga players that you studied with, what did they teach you? How, what was their approach? Well, they were very much uh, about uh, technique, you know, so they, they taught me the kind of the technique and how to get the sound and, and you know, different rhythms and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I, I learned mostly by, by playing and by listening to other records. And I would say that was the, the bulk of my learning came from that. And then on the job. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've gone through so many eras um, in percussion. When I first started playing, I played in folk music. And folk music was a really great place to learn how to do what we call painting, where you're using very delicate things or, you know, finger symbols and shakers and chimes and, you know, symbols for swells and little clay drums and all kinds of different little percussion things from around the world that you can generate to, to, to you know, to work in the environment of, of trying to paint a picture with percussion. But then uh, the downside of playing folk music is you're usually playing with an acoustic guitar player and many of them, you know, have not really played a lot with drum kit or with percussion, so their time is not usually tremendously excellent. Right, so I know that when disco came along, I couldn't have been happier because suddenly I was playing with 
just kick drum, boom, boom, boom. And, and then, and, and because percussion was so much in demand at that time and drum machines hadn't yet been invented, so I would get to do all of the percussion overdubs, you know, I, and it was just, it was, just, it was peak percussion time for sure. That was a great era for uh, percussionists. Was that studio work in Toronto? Uh, Montreal, Toronto, yeah. I, okay. I, I lived in Toronto during that time, so most of the work was in Toronto. Okay. And before we leave um, some of your in early inspirations, because we'd mentioned Eddie Harris combining instruments, because some people might have thought that went by fast. So he, he had the saxo bone and the, the git organ. I'm not sure how that worked, guitar-organ combo. Yeah, well, I, what, what I understand is that he had a lot of processing on his horns, where okay. he would try and make them sound like other instruments, and that was very innovative at the time. What I'd written is that he would put a saxophone, like he combined the mouthpieces, so like, mm -hmm. and uh, he'd have a reed um, mouthpiece on a trumpet, stuff like that. Oh, okay, that, that I was not aware of. Yeah, and I guess processing, yeah. Let's talk about um, your the movie you made with uh, Jean-Francois Gaton, Symbolism. It was so beautiful and inspiring. Oh, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, that. So, so it was a, a film that I made about my father and I guess my mother because they're both prominent in the, in the film. And um, it was a very interesting project in the sense that, uh, you know, lots of, lots of people make pictures or documentaries about their parents or think that they have interesting stories to tell and I remember when I first when Jean-Francois and I first developed the project I would reach out to you know potential producers and potential distributors and stuff and you could always tell that you know as soon as it was like oh yeah another Jewish boy making a film about his parents you know it was like they were just so uninterested it was just remarkable how uninterested they were you know they could could not get me off the phone quick enough and I was like, yeah, I'll send you the trailer and have a look at it and see what you think, you know. And I sent them the trailer, they call me right back. Here's a clip from the trailer for the film Zimbalism. For the podcast audience who can't see the images, I encourage you to look up the incredible photography of George Zimbal afterwards. And of course, to see Zimbalism, which I streamed for free using the app Tubi TV, T-U-B-I. Street photography. Now, somebody could call the police on you if you're taking a picture. If they say they're gonna put me in jail because I'm taking somebody's pictures with no evil intent, then let them put me in jail. I'm not gonna stop because it's history. George has remained true for six decades now. Stayed with that mission of the watcher. He is the founder of what today we call humanist photography. I really believe that I am a documentary photographer by nature, in the sense that I want to tell stories. He was good at finding things like the Kennedy parades and, and the Maryland shoot, of course. I couldn't I was there, I did the shoot, 
Next day, I cut the film, put it in envelopes, and there it sat till 1976. They'd be like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So that's the first thing you have to fight against is that, you know, there's a perception of people want to honor their parents and there's no story there, whatever. In, in our case, uh, there was a good story there. And um, we had a tremendous time, Jean-Francois and I had a tremendous time making the film. And it was a, it was a very beautiful experience. Um, we, we've traveled all over the world with that film, and that's been quite remarkable as well. Maybe you want to share some of the stories uh, for people who haven't seen it yet. I, I have to say that your, your mother, so Elaine Cernovitz uh, was a writer and psychotherapist. Yes. Right? Correct. Seemed like an incredible woman and role model, as well as your dad, um, the photographer George Zimbel. So their love story, I found so beautiful too. That was told <laughs> the, the film. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, it was very, you know it was very much of a different time. And my father was a freelance photographer, you know, working out of New York City at the time, and had very very little money. And my mother was working at the UN when they met, and um, uh, you know it was it was the story of you know, kind of two artists meeting in New York and, and trying to make a go of it. And uh, uh, I don't want to give it all away, but it was certainly something that uh, that led to different perceptions as to what happened. And it's funny that, you know, we ended up with the editing of that because Jean-Francois interviewed my father. I was not present for that particular interview that he did with my father, where my father was speaking about my mother and how they met. And uh, so I never saw that interview until it came back from the editors. Wow. We had a very interesting way of making this film because uh, uh, we did a master interview with George, which took two days um, and was shot in a very distinctive manner. Uh, and then we did an interview with my mother, who initially refused, <laughs> refused to be interviewed. <laughs> and Jean-Francois had to convince her. <laughs> So, anyway, uh, making a film with your parents is a very complicated thing to do. I, you know, I've done some work in film and television, and it's always nerve-wracking to present your project to an audience, to your boss, to the network, to whoever, you know. But I don't think I was ever as nervous as presenting the first rough cut to my parents. I was terrified, and the rough cut was. You know, you know, rough cuts are always a little bit longer. This one was like two hours and 40 minutes long. And I remember playing it for them and just thinking, oh, my God. Like, first of all, when you do a documentary, I mean, there are standards for documentaries. You know, you are supposed to be an independent journalist. You're supposed to be journalistic. You're not supposed to let your subjects have a say in the cuts and stuff like that. You know, I wanted to respect those things as a as a documentary maker. I didn't want my parents starting giving me notes on the on the cut. So anyway, it was a complicated project, but at the end of it, you know, we were all very proud of it and um it was really an amazing adventure to go on with them. Mm -hmm. Especially once we started doing the screenings and and the film became part of part of our world uh, together. It was like in Toronto, it was a sold out screening at the hot docks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a photo, which I'll send you, 
of uh, my parents and me making our way to the stage, I get kind of emotional. Yeah, you lost your mother a few years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it was it was a great uh, it was a great project, and uh, we've managed to go to China and Italy and the UK. <laughs> In the UK, it was quite funny because uh, it was playing at the Rain Dance Festival, and uh, I went to the uh, the the place to check in and 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 said uh i'm here to see you know with the film symbolism oh she said oh yeah that's that's on today we're very excited about that film and uh she says it's almost sold out and i was like wow that's fantastic how big is the theater she said it's about 40 40 people (laughs) (laughs) so you know you have to be you have to be very you have to be moderate your your expectations when you go into those situations in that film, you included the part about your sister being adopted from Korea. Yes. Because I'm an ad- adoptive mother, one of our children's uh, adopted from China. Uh-huh. So when I was preparing for that emotional process, I read some books about the Korean a- adoptees coming to mm-hmm. the States because that was that whole generation and it sort of just to think about a lot of cultural issues and ways to mm-hmm. approach things. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I know that it was a very, like my mother says in the film, it was the hardest childbirth she gave was mm-hmm. uh, getting my sister here. Uh, and um, there's all kinds of problems with uh, racism in the United States Immigration Service and uh, cha- health challenges. But, you know, she's been with us now. She just turned 60 and uh, she is uh, my sister and I love her dearly. And I'm so glad they did that. Yeah. Yeah. What, did you get, um, were people more accepting in PI of your family or did it come up in terms of racism? Uh, you know, it was never something that I was aware of when I was living there because, you know, locally it wasn't an issue. But I know that when Jody went to high school in Charlottetown, she had a lot of problems there. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it you know... At that particular time, I don't know if that's still the case, but at that particular time, Charlottetown PEI was not a very open place when it came to uh, people of different races, which is shocking in a way because um, there's a huge uh, Lebanese population in Charlottetown. The uh, premier was Lebanese, and then his son became the premier after him, and he was Lebanese, so... It seemed odd to me to hear that PEI was as racist as as reports that I got from Jody about this particular thing. You know, it's a very small place, and when a small place of that, you know that nature invites a Lebanese immigrant to become the premier, that's that's kind of counterintuitive to a racist society. One would think. Mm-hmm. So when your parents immigrated, it was the Vietnam War was on. Yes. And they Not, had visited PEI in the summer. Yes, it's the typical story, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the family goes on vacation to this quirky little island. Uh, there was no causeway then. It was an actual ferry boat that got you there. Uh, this is in 1970 that they went on vacation there. And um, fell in love with the place. And I don't know 
if you or your viewers have been to PEI in the summer, but if you get on a really nice sunny day and it's warm and you're in Prince Edward Island, it's pretty easy to fall in love. I mean, it's a spectacularly beautiful place. And um, the people are extremely kind, notwithstanding what we just were speaking about. And um, uh, so they bought this old farmhouse with a hundred acres and it was on the water in Argyle Shore in between Charlottetown and Summerside and it had been abandoned for a couple of years and um, when we arrived the next year uh, we drove right by it we didn't even recognize it it had been so uh, injured during the winter that it was like there's the house no that's not the house yeah that's the house and there was no running water and there was like you know, 2,000 pounds of rotting potatoes in the basement. So it was, uh, it was an undertaking. Uh, but my family stayed there for 10 years, and um, it, was a, it was a wonderful adventure for, for all of us. And, and I think it, it put us on different paths that, than we would have found in New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't really go back and you know, analyze those things, but certainly I had opportunities in PEI that I don't think I would have had in New York. Interesting. And uh, your dad, I mean, he had late critical success as a photographer later in life. In fact, wasn't his first retrospective in PEI? Yes, it was. Uh, that was at the PEI uh, Art Gallery. There's a beautiful art gallery there, and that was one of his, his first retrospectives. And that's when he started making a shift from uh, kind of a, um, you know, photojournalism to uh becoming more of a documentary uh, photographer. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a bit of a, a, a transformation there. So your parents are, you know, obviously this is an incredibly creative, unusual household. How did they react when you dropped out of school? The, you know, it was a... I was told that I was to stay in school, and eventually I just couldn't take it anymore, and I disobeyed that order, and then I think the the general perception at that moment was like, okay, well, what are you going to do now? So it wasn't so much about punishing me for making that decision. It was about, okay, like, what's your path? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always quote uh, Bud McDougall, the Canadian entrepreneur and capitalist extraordinaire who founded the Argus Corporation, because his quote is, um, I quit school in grade nine, my biggest regret in life is that I didn't quit in grade eight. <laughs> so, yeah. I've never regretted leaving school. I mean, we had a house full of music and books, and there was lots of t- stuff to talk about at the table. There was an education in that house. Yeah. Uh, in uh, in symbolism, your dad is quoted as saying that he. Li- I'm probably not exactly quoting him, but that he he really liked the freelance life, and as long as he had music and his dark room and his studio, he was happy. Yes, that's correct. He 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 uh, he did he did enjoy that. He was always hustling. I mean, that's part of being mm-hmm. you know an artist, a freelance artist. You're always trying to get your work in front of people. You're always trying to you know make sure that you have an opportunity to create projects and 
I mean, that's what the life of an artist is. It's, it's always working hard to get the work out there, as I'm sure you know yourself. Yeah, I, I'm more aware of it through talking to my guests on the series, honestly, because I have an uh, orchestra job. So I have right. a very straight and narrow path in music. You know, right. just kept my head down, practice violin, and I have this um, wonderful job, but it's, it's not, I wasn't a freelancer very long. Right. But I, I'm more and more aware of the need, and especially for anyone coming up now in the music business, they have to have, they need to develop those entrepreneurial skills. And you mm -hmm. need to have a backup plan. I mean, look what this pandemic has shown us in this mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny, you know, I met a symphony musician who just recently retired, and she said, I'm not going to read music anymore. <laughs> I'm only going to play my instrument. Yeah. And I thought I'd never heard anyone say that expression. I'm not reading music anymore. It was quite powerful. One of my colleagues a few years ago said it, it's a conveyor belt of music. And that really stuck with me because mm -hmm. when we're busy, we're so busy. And, you know, mm -hmm. if I get a ballet score as a violinist, it can be 100 pages. Wow. And you're just plowing, especially the beginning of your career when you don't know anything, you're just plowing through. And you have to play at a very high level. You're expected at the first rehearsal to play everything perfectly at tempo. So, But we don't have to memorize anything. And in my discussion with Colleen, this will be released before your episode, she said her first gig with Manteca, you told her you better be off book for every tune. And she was really, it was huge. <laughs> she had to learn all this stuff. Wow. I didn't realize I was such a prick. <laughs> You know, we the whole thing about off book is um, I just think that when we walk on stage and we don't have music in front of us, it seems like we've been out touring and playing and stuff like that. Yeah. And and so I would really rather not have music. And um, uh, one of the f famous stories in our recent life is is with um, our bassist Will Jarvis because. Um, Will joined the band, and, and the day that he joined the band, he broke his foot. Oof. And he tripped and broke his foot. So he went through a period of like three months of, um, he, was, he couldn't leave the house, he was all taped up, blah, 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 whatever. And that's the time that he took the charts and started learning the material. So he shows up at his first rehearsal three months after he's been an official Manteca member. We hadn't worked during that period. He shows up at the rehearsal, he's got no charts. And we're like, wow, that's kind of weird. And starts playing through the book. And then we got to a point where there was a bit of a problem with the arrangement. And he said, no, no, it, that shot's on bar, that's, that shot's on bar 64, the last, the last 16th note of, of four. He's not looking at a chart. We're like, dude, what? <laughs> he had memorized everything. Wow. He knew the book better than we did. <laughs> So, I mean, we've been through that a lot. Lately, we just, um, in um, October of this year, uh, we've been doing this uh, television series or a streaming series, if you will, called Road Stories. And we had four shows to shoot in four days and we had 42 songs to learn. And, and, and of those songs, we were also recording them simultaneously for our new record. So it was a huge undertaking. A really huge undertaking. Isn't that the same title you for that radio series you had? 
That's correct. Okay. So well, they're not... your, your investigative journalism is not <laughs> ending here. But they're not connected. It's just the same. It's the same title, yeah. Okay. It's 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 the same principle. It's a storytelling about being on the road. Yeah. Basically, so. One of those episodes I listened to uh, was about uh, riders, and actually, I didn't know um, that that legendary story about the M and M's. Like, I didn't actually understand that before listening to that. So Mm -hmm. that was cool. Mm -hmm. And as band leader and co-composer, I mean, you've you've fulfilled so many roles with this band. You've also been responsible for all this um, legalistic stuff, right? Writing the writers and... Yeah, not me personally in that. that. I mean, that's been developed with our production manager, but I'm always, okay. you know, when it comes to all those technical things, I'm the one that in the band that kind of works on that stuff with okay. the, our production team. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. I mean, you know, we are, uh, we are nine musicians on stage. Uh, there are a lot of instruments. I mean, you know, from your interview with Colleen that uh, she plays, I think, 10 or 11 instruments with us. And, um, and, you know, as you go through the band, there's a lot of different equipment being used. So getting us up on stage and, and, and getting the show to, 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 to be seamless in terms of audio and video production and, and lighting and all that stuff, that's, that's a challenging project. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've had a great crew with us over the years. Our, Tony Crea, our sound man, I always say he's, he's new. He's only been with us 32 years. <laughs> so... But uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's challenging. Hi, just a quick break from the episode. I'm an independent podcaster who does all the many jobs required to produce this series, and there are a lot of costs I bear as well. Please consider either buying me a virtual coffee as a tip or becoming a monthly supporter starting at $3 Canadian, which is close to $2 US or 2 euros, and getting access to unique perks. The link is in the description. Now, back to the episode. I should tell you about the new record. There's a, there's a good story in this. So, over the years, you know, uh, what, a challenge you face as a Canadian recording artist is, you know, we have a small country um, and a very small music press here, as it were, especially now that all the major dailies have kind of bailed out of culture reporting. Um, as a result, you know, it's, it's not easy to, to keep people excited about, uh, you know, another record. Like, your fans are excited about it, but the journalists are not excited about it because, you know, yeah, we love you guys, what else is new? You know what I mean? That's, that's something that you hear about quite frequently. So we've always thought, okay, you know, we, we really need to do a project. We need to do something that has an interesting story behind it. And, you know, some people have always told us, oh, you guys should do like a concept album like, you know, Manteca does Led Zeppelin or Manteca does whatever. And we're like, no, we don't do that because we love composing the music. That's what we do. That's part of the thrill for us is writing the records. We don't want to be, you know, covering other people's material. And it's just because that's one of the things that we get excited about. So I was talking to Colleen, actually, uh, two years ago and and she said you know there's so many great young players coming up why don't we do a project with some of the great young players who are around and she said you know I would love to record with Virginia McDonald 
Kurt's daughter, you know Kurt's daughter, don't you? And I was like, yeah, well, Kurt played in the band. Kurt McDonald played in Manteca. He was our first saxophone player. So she suggested Virginia, and, and then it was suddenly it, a light bulb went on for both of us, and it was just like, oh, wow, okay. I wonder how many kids there are in Manteca's DNA. I wonder how many of them are professional musicians, because my son's a professional musician. Doug's two daughters are both professional musicians. So we started going through it. Art's son is a professional musician. So it suddenly we went, wow, this is crazy. There's a, there's, there turned out there were 11 musicians, professional musicians, who are from members of Manteca. Now, some of these kids never saw Manteca before because their parents left the group before they were even conceived. But we reached out to all of them through email, sent them an email. It was like, hi, my name's Matt. I play in this band. Your father played in this band or your mother played in this band. Um, we're going to be doing a record. Would you like to do the record with us? It's called The Offspring Project. And uh, every single one of them said yes. And then we set out and said, okay, so you could participate in this by playing on it or you can write something for us. We will commission a piece um, and um, six of them said yes, they would take the commission. And then we wrote it. We wrote a basically a a briefing as to you know how to write for Manteca, what what it is, how we perceive of ourselves. And then at the end of that perception document, we said, you know, you are welcome to follow these guidelines, or you are welcome to throw them out and do whatever you want. And uh, so the results have been amazing, and. Um, we are just finishing that record uh, next week, and it will be out. Uh, we're not sure whether it's coming out in the spring of 23 or the fall of 23. That's still got to be decided. What did you put in that briefing document? Do you remember? It was very specific uh, in terms of... Uh, I mean, if you want, I can actually read it for you. I'm happy to do that, or I can just describe it. Okay, so, so basically, uh, we said... That, you know, uh, we define ourselves by saying that we like memorable melodies that do not suck. <laughs> and what that means is that a melody that is too saccharine, too sweet, will just never fly with us. Or too simple. It just would never fly. But we do like melody. That's very important. And we talked about groove, and we talked about some of the concepts for grooves that we have. Like, when we we went away for a while, we were on hiatus for a couple of years, and, and, we went, and when we came back, we wanted to kind of redefine uh, a principle of percussion. And, and that was, you know, if you have three percussionists, very often what you'll do is you'll make sure that everybody's playing a different kind of, in a different sonic world. So... Instead of it being, you know, two hand drummers, you'd have like a cowbell or timbali or, you know, metal with skin on skin or, you know, something low uh, against something high, like a, a, a wood block going up against a guiro or something like that. And we decided to throw that concept out and that we would create what we call the bubble. And the bubble is like all of us playing in a very similar type of range. Uh, and playing very circular patterns that kind of percolate. And so we're all intertwined in each other's sonic space, 
but we're all contributing to this one kind of linear and circular pattern, which you can hear very frequently in the more contemporary, the more recent Manteca recordings. So we talk about that. We also talk about, in the briefing note, how important it is for us to use instruments that are off the beaten path of what is normally considered jazz. So, in other words, alto flute, uh, bass clarinet. Uh, bass clarinet and electric guitar is one of the most awesome, awe-inspiring, heavy metal-esque things you've ever heard. It's just, we, we love this texture. So we talked about, you know, looking for ensembles within the ensemble. How can you arrange the instruments that Manteca has? What would you do with alto flute so that it could be heard, right? Because it's, it's, it's in a low register and it's a soft instrument. So how would you use that instrument in a way that it could speak for us and, and communicate that kind of lovely chocolate sensibility that that instrument has? Because so many people, when we said we wanted to use, you know, alto flute and bass clarinet, they're like, no, you're never going to hear them in a band that big. You're never going to hear it. You're never going to hear it. And I was like, yeah, we're going to hear it because we're going to arrange the music in a way that you can hear those instruments. And so there was a lot of naysayers in the early days of introducing those instruments. And those are, so, so having, having, uh, you know, this, this basic roster of instruments for the, for the children for the children to write with was tremendous fun because a lot of them had never written for some of these instruments before. Um, and, uh, and the stuff that they came up with is, is very, very unique. I was curious, did your son Lucas, did he sing on it or did he write something? No, he wrote something. He didn't play on it. He wanted, I wanted him to play on it. He didn't want to play on it. Um, uh, he wrote a piece, uh, which was probably the most challenging piece on the record. It's called Endless Follies. And it, he read something, he got the title because he read something about nepotism being an endless folly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a lovely piece and it features a Virginia, a Virginia McDonald on clarinet on that song. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, m both Mark and Colleen alluded to this project in their... Um, interviews so that'll be uh, cool for everyone to, to hear it it's a it's a fascinating project for us too because I mean we would have never ended up with this configuration of songs on a Manteca record in a million in a million years yeah. I mean Maddie and Susie Wilde wrote a pop song which is kind of like a you know Maddie and Susie Wilde doing Michael Jackson and the title of the song is a dress you can dance in well, Manteca has never considered a dress you can dance in. So it's really fun. I, we're very excited about it, but it's, it's, it is going to be a, a, a real departure on a lot of levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking the sound of the band, because I've listened to some of your older albums and your newer ones more. And when you introduce guitar and, you know, with Colleen sounds, it's really cool. I, I love the textures. Um, and the colors you, you get in, in the band. You know, we've learned a lot of things over the years, and we're, we're still learning all the time. Uh, but when trombone, we brought trombone into the band uh, very late. Uh, trombone came in in, uh, uh, 19, uh, in 2007. In 2007. And 
I was excited about the bone for its power and for its low end and stuff like that, but it, it did something that I never expected it to do, and it, and it, it seemed to kind of unify. Uh, it, was a, it was a bridge between the rhythm section and the horn section mm -hmm. that wasn't there when we had two trumpets and two saxophones. And I was, quite, I, I was taken off guard by that. I was surprised by that. It was delightful. And having Mark Ferguson in the band has been fantastic because he's also a wonderful keyboard player and he plays vibes with us as well. So, and he's just a great person to be around. So, um, and he's a very good composer. He has never, he's not tabled anything for us yet, but I think he's working on a piece for us now. Yeah. He played some of his original tunes in the episode that I recorded with him last year. People he, should check that out. He's a great writer, yeah. yeah. Your son, Lucas, I, I was listening to some of his songs, and he's a beautiful uh, lyricist as well. Yes, he's a and very he, good lyricist. He reminded me of Leonard Cohen, who I know you interviewed, I listened to that interview, when you were a very young man. How, and you had an interview series, right, that you had developed? Yeah, um, I, I, I played with Leonard as well, but I interviewed him in 1988 uh, for a TV series that, that the CBC did called Wired, which was a co-production between the BBC, the CBC, and ABC in the U.S. And I was their Canadian host for that, and that's when I got to interview and, and meet Leonard for the first time. One of the things about Leonard was that uh, in 1993 we were doing, uh, Doug and I were uh, band leaders of the band on uh, Ralph Benmergi's TV show called Friday Night with Ralph Benmergi on CBC, mm -hmm. which was CBC trying to do late night TV. and. Um, they booked, the producers booked Leonard, but Leonard was like, no, I don't want to play with the band, I want to use my tracks. Because he had just finished his, uh, the Future album. Yeah, that's what it was, the Future. So I wrote him a note and I said, hey, Leonard, we met in 88, I interviewed you for the show, wonderful meeting you, blah, blah, blah. Here's, some, here's, here's what our band sounds like. I had taken some recordings from the show. We would love to play with you. So um, we get the message comes back from management. Yes, Leonard heard the tapes. He would love to play with the band. So that was very nice. Uh, so we found out which tunes he was doing. And I told the band, I said, when Leonard gets here, uh, we're going to practice these tunes before he gets here. We're going to know them backwards and forwards. But when he gets here and passes out the charts, let's just ask lots of questions as if we've never heard it before. And that's exactly what we did. Like, you know, it's all written down on the chart, but and we knew it backwards and forwards, but we were like, Leonard, after the guitar solo, do we go to a chorus, you know? And 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 he was like, turned to us and he said, Well, friends, should we do this? And it was just like one, two, three and it was just like boom, we hit it so hard and he was just like, Whoa, because he'd never heard this tune being played by a band because he just finished the record, which was made with all these dinky little mm -hmm synth things so he was thrilled he couldn't stop talking about the band through the whole interviews wow you're a band wow it's like ralph's trying to get him onto some other subjects so yeah. you were kind of pranking him it was sort of a, a psych out to pretend you didn't know what you were doing yeah we didn't we didn't want him to know that we had rehearsed the tunes before okay it wasn't it wasn't a psych out it was simply we wanted him to um be impressed with our accuracy, heft, and and groove, and uh, and so to this day, well, they no one ever knew that. That's a very good story. And you you open no sorry Miles Davis opened for your band. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I recall we were doing a festival in 
Concord, California. And um, I get the program. And it's like Yellow Jackets, Michael Franks, Miles Davis. After Miles is Manteca. I call the promoter up, I think. I just got the press release. I think there's just a typographical error. He goes, no, no, Miles doesn't close. I was like, okay, we'll close. So, so that's what we did, which was tremendous. But uh, going on after Miles, I, I remember Miles walked by our dressing room and he kind of looked in while we were warming up and nodded his head and, and walked out. And it was pretty thrilling. And then I, I, later on, I recorded a Miles Davis concert for CBC when I was producing um, uh, one of their shows for the entertainers. Uh, I got to, to record. Miles was at Massey Hall for two nights. And I got to record one of those two nights uh, with the CBC Mobile, which was great fun. Mm -hmm. You've worn so many hats. I, it's, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even um, point to a certain project because they're all so big. I'm curious, like you oversaw live to air Canada Day celebrations of Parliament Hill several times. Mm -hmm. You did this Pan Am Games huge uh, production with Cirque du Soleil and many, many performers. You had hundreds and hundreds of people working under you. Which of those big projects sort of um, made the, I don't know, I don't know how to phrase this, but made, sort of was most meaningful or taught you the most in terms of different skills? Well, you know, the, those, those large projects, they are, they are constantly teaching you lessons and mm -hmm. They are extremely difficult projects to do for so many reasons. Um, you know, Canada Day on Parliament Hill, I'm an immigrant to Canada, and to have the, to have the artistic directorship of that show is such a deep honor. But it is fraught with so many challenges. To render a vision of what your country is in a cultural sense, in both English and French, um, is extremely hard because not everybody shares your views on those issues. And um, the shows I've done Canada Day three, three times as the artistic director and lead producer. And in each case, um, I think I've come out of it with a, a Canada Day show that is very artistically grounded and progressive and it's not, it doesn't suck. You know, but that show has it has been very saccharine on many occasions. There's been too many young children singing songs out of tune that you know some bureaucrat thought was the right way to go. And it's you know yes, children should have a presence on the show. Yes, youth choirs are fantastic. Yes, they have to, all those elements have to be dealt with properly. When they're not dealt with properly, you end up with this saccharine kind of patriotic. Tim Horton's view of Canada, which is just repulsive to me, you know what I mean? And, and, and it, it's not a conservative or a liberal thing. It happens with both regimes back and forth. It, it has to do with, you know, which, you know, what producer, how producers view those things. I mean, it's basically, you have to be very attentive to, to creating something that works um, in such a what's called a hostile environment, which is outside, mm -hmm. with a broadcast team that is thrown in at the last minute. Um, but I'm very, very proud of the shows that we did, particularly the show in 2012, 
which was a complete different kind of configuration. Um, and uh, uh, we managed to do a lot of very innovative stuff uh, on that show, um, including Set Doigt de la Main, Pierre Lapointe. Uh, we, we, as a string player, you, you'd be uh, touched. We put the, a string quartet together and we wrote two original pieces for them, one of which they started, they, they, were, they danced in. We taught them how to dance. We worked with a choreographer. Uh, Lynn Tremblay was my partner. Uh, she's a choreographer, and, and she choreographed this piece that Doug wrote for us, which was like a minute and 10 seconds long. And so it was, it was quite, a, it was so many things that happened in that show. So yeah, I, I, I really, uh, you know, I'm so deeply honored to be able to do that as an immigrant, to just, to write that show and to, to create that show is it's it's an incredible experience. Um, the show that I did with Cirque uh, at uh, at the Rogers Center again was a, a gigantic, uh, unbelievably huge show. One of the biggest the biggest I've ever done. It's like it's like doing the Olympics uh, because the Pan Am Games are like the baby Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're working in Canada, you know you're dealing with things like you know usually. You'd be in the venue for three or four weeks before the show. We had three days. You know, this is the thing about working here. It's like you're doing these gigantic international level shows, but you don't have the resources that they have in the international arena. Like Canada Day on Parliament Hill is, it is, it's damn near impossible to do because you get the, the, the video crew pulls in the morning of the show. Like how do you, how do you direct a show with a video team that comes in on the morning of the show? They don't even see a rehearsal. You know what I mean? It's crazy. But anyway, uh, so yeah, all those experiences have been incredibly um, gratifying and extremely challenging. And uh, you learn a lot about um, you learn a lot about preparation. You learn a lot about uh, how can how can we make this seem like we've done this show before. I played just a couple times in on the Canada Day uh, thing, um, once with my orchestra and once it was like a separate gig with a few string players backing up some pop singers. And it was the year it was like 47 degrees. We had this crazy heat wave. And your so instrument wasn't in tune. <laughs> yeah. Well, the wind was really, really vicious. Right. So that our stands blew over in right. the rehearsal. So I think by the evening they had sandbags right, and then right. somebody backstage decided it'd be a good idea to um, to glue, tape my music to the stand, which right. is a good idea, except there were several tunes. Right. And so we got to the end of the first tune and I realized I had to rip, <laughs> holding my violin and it was televised live to air. I had to rip all this music off to access the music underneath, which I could access because they just taped the edges. It was quite funny actually. I know it's, it's you cannot imagine how many things go wrong on that show. It's like it just, it's it's uh, it's really a challenging show. Um, we the last time I did it, we rehearsed. It, nobody rehearses. We rehearsed off site for weeks in advance. That's never done. So part of making that show good is about trying to bring innovation to, not just the choice of artists and how you use those artists and, you know, writing a. a writing a bilingual script that is a very very hard thing to do mm-hmm. and and dealing with government you know i'll tell you 
you have to be a very wily person to be able to talk them out of some of the stuff that they want to do. Some of the perceptions of what we are as a, as a nation, it's like just Tim Hortons. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not a very enlightened view of, of our people. When you talk about patriotism and when you love your country, the language that is available to you, it is not, there is not a huge amount of choice. And you have to be very careful because you can go off the rails and sound uh, like saccharine in two seconds. Mm-hmm. It is very, very hard to do. And it is incredibly hard to do in both languages, right? And so it's a beautiful challenge. And so when, when, you know, when the scripts are approved and I'm happy with them and the client is happy with them as they always are, because, I mean, it's just there are battles to get there. But eventually it's like, okay, you know, we've done this collectively. Sometimes I've had writers from Heritage working with me and that's been fantastic. But, it, you know, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that, it's a wasteland out there. It's not at all. There's there's very talented people everywhere at, at Heritage Canada, and um, there's a lot that you can accomplish there. But you just have to be... It's, it, it is a trap for everybody to talk about patriotism and not become sucky. So, Matt, many people listening to this aren't Canadian, and they won't get the Tim Hortons reference, so I could just maybe explain. It's this donut and coffee chain that's in every community across our entire huge country yes ubiquitous yes kind of bland and corporate yes i mean you know the the reason that they have had such success is because their food has no flavor it's eat a tuna fish salad out of tim hortons and good luck trying to discern what is in it but um yeah tim horton was a hockey player uh he died very tragically in a terrible car accident on the uh, QEW in Toronto. Uh, he was thrown 45 feet from the car. Oof. And um, I don't know if I... They have something called a Timbit, which is the center hole of the donut. Uh, I'm not sure I would have had a Timbit if I was... If the owner of my company had perished in an automobile accident. Mm. <laughs> but anyway... Um, yeah, so uh, Tim Hortons is quite popular in the United States as well. And it's also, it's even in Korea. In Korea, they have a Tim, I think it's called a, there's another name for the Tim Hortons in, in Korea because um, a Tim Hortons, it's called. Really? Yes. <laughs> and it's not run by the Tim Hortons chain. But somebody copied them. Everything. <laughs> Color scheme, menu, everything. It's called Tim Morton's. <laughs> I was thinking about asking you about metrics. You know, you're, you're a podcaster. You have a very successful podcast. And you've been doing publicity for so many years. You have an advertising agency. And there's a story you told on one of your shows about you're at a red light and you hear a Manteca album being yes. blasted from the car. <laughs> if you could share that with us. Yeah, so in the early days... Um, Manteca, we were we were in our van going to a gig, and there was we were at the stoplight in Toronto, and there was this the record had just come out, and it was on the radio, and there was this car full of beautiful women, and they were turning up the music and listening to it, and then all of a sudden one of them said, "No, nah, I don't like that," and moved it to another station. <laughs> so 
it's always interesting to see how people perceive your work, you know. Um, and uh, for us, it's always been a great challenge because we're, we're playing music that is not normally seen as popular music, right? Uh, but it is popular because it is energetic and it's melodic and it's fun to watch and, you know, give us an audience that doesn't know who we think we are and we will try and convince them that their, their time is worth staying. And, uh, and we're pretty successful at doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like for us, it was very, we've had a lot of lessons in doing this, right? Because we would tour across Canada playing theaters and then we'd go into the States playing, you know, sports bars, right? For three mm -hmm. people. So mm -hmm. you have to keep the band's energy up if, if, if they're going between those two kind of success and uh, development points. That's always a challenge to do. But uh, we did it because we had a great deal of pride in what we did. And, and, and we, we wanted to deliver um, a really, really strong statement to anybody that we encountered. When you are touring, especially I know you toured a lot in the 80s and so on, would, I'm guessing you couldn't always trust the local producer to do enough publicity. You know, that was such a different time because, you know, newspapers actually covered culture mm -hmm. at the time and uh, the CBC had uh, strong, uh, you know, coverage of Canadian culture, not just pop culture at the time. And... Um, and all of the radio stations, there was a huge a bunch of radio stations across the country that had a CRTC obligation. It was called Category 6 Music. So it was like jazz, gospel, and religious music, I think, are the three of them. Uh, and, and stations were obliged to play uh, three hours a week. So there were all these jazz programs across the country on pop music stations. Well, eventually, you know, broadcasters got rid of that, and then all those jazz shows were just taken off the air. Um, and so those type of things uh, were very helpful in terms of getting, um, uh, you know, the work out to people. You know, mm -hmm. um, uh, the bassist Miroslav Vyotis said, if you played jazz music for people, if it was available to them, they would like it. They would learn to like it, you know. And, and that's the problem with instrumental music and, and you know, world music and jazz it's it's so seldom available to people in the, the the public sphere that it's hard to find. And let's talk about genres. You know, I always get amused by these festivals because in Ottawa we have the jazz festival. The blue, they probably may have renamed things by now, but you know, folk fest and all these all these festivals have such a mix of genres. And I think the the original name of the festival doesn't have much relation sometimes to what the product is. That's true. Um, and that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, look, what appears at jazz festivals, um, you know, on, on one level, I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand that festivals need numbers, they need large audiences, and, and, you know, as a result, they've gone into the pop realm. But now you see festivals are like, you know, 85, 90% pop, and they're still called jazz festivals, so... I think that's a bit uh, of a misnomer, and it's it's challenging. You know, it's challenging for everybody. It's you know to create festivals that that attract public. That's that's hard. There's a lot of competition out there these days, not just from other festivals, from Netflix, from all kinds of things. You know, it is a very yeah. challenging environment. So, I have sympathy for 
promoters and uh, artistic directors. But I do think that in Canada, uh, the jazz festivals have... I, I don't really admire the way they deal with Canadian talent. Everybody has to apply. Nobody ever phones and says, hey, would you like to do our festival? Or, hey, could we potentially work out something with you? And, you know, there's, that just doesn't exist. If you don't apply, you don't get asked. Yeah. You've talked about hustling a few times, um, you know, um, trying to get your film made about your dad and also with the band. And I'm finding as a, as a podcaster too, like just in terms of making cold calls or even reaching out to people that I know, the sometimes it's surprising to me how few people will respond to an email. And do, do you find you have to, I don't know, in terms of your role in the band or in your other work, that you just have to keep sort of bothering people, you know, just following up? Well, yeah, you've hit on something that I, I've, I've thought a lot about. I've written about this as well. Um, it is a very, very uh, interesting subject because, you know, when you study people in the arts who have had success, you will very often find, you'll hear these stories about people being incessantly self-promoters and you know never giving up and stuff like that and um, I would say it is not appreciated here like in Canada the word ambition is a bad word in the United States if you say somebody's ambitious oh that's a good thing and I mean it it's like seriously you say in a room full of Canadians oh he's very ambitious oh oh that's you say that in the States you're like wow that's great good for you you know what I mean so there's trouble on both sides of that equation. But the fact of the matter is, uh, if you want to succeed with your art, and your art is not pop mainstream art, then you have to fight for a place, and you have to get to the table. And, you know, people think I like doing that. I hate doing that. I'm tired of it. I'm, I don't want to... I have a podcast. I... I you know, I would like my podcast to reach as many people as possible. I don't, I don't want to, I want to spend the day making the podcast. I don't want to spend the day out trying to secure listeners and playing with like, you know, different radio broadcasters who are dipping their feet into podcasting. It's just, that's not, that's not fun, but you have to do it. So it's part of, you know, how you represent your work and there are agents i have a literary agent i have a, a, a you know a voice agent i have different people who work with me on different things and it's always nice to have that kind of representation but um uh that's mostly for you know not having to negotiate contracts <laughs> you know what i mean and and to some degree securing work but that's a challenge it's it's like you have to learn how to be charming you have to learn how to be um, aggressive, but not too aggressive. You have to learn how to sell your work. And uh, for me with Manteca, it's always been easier to sell Manteca than anything else I've done because Manteca, I'm just one member of Manteca. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Doug and I look after the artistic direction of the band and we write most of the material, but ultimately, you know, we are part of a larger collective. So it's not like it's that personal a thing where I can't say, oh, we killed it last night. You know what I mean? If I say I killed it last night, it sounds really pretentious. But if I say we killed it last night, then it's a little bit more, not so, it's not so ambitious. <laughs> I, 
I was curious about your writing process with Doug because he's a keyboard player. Do you also play keyboards or guitar to help you with writing? No, I play a little bit of guitar, but like just a little bit. But so basically the way that we work together is uh, he will draft something and then we will kind of work on it together. I'll sing him stuff and he'll write that down and, and you know, we will uh, work on arrangements together. We'll send demos back and forth to each other. But it's very much a... The way he described it, he says, uh, I'm the architect, he's the builder. But I don't think that's entirely fair to him because he does a lot of architecture. He does a lot of visioning. Um, so, You have such memorable riffs and ear... I have to say, this whole time we've been talking, I've had some earworms of Manteca oh, nice. in my head. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I won't sing them for everybody, but okay. it's, it's like really loud in my head. Well, one thing I've always loved about Doug's writing is he's, he, he, he has, he's a master of the, the memorable melody that doesn't suck. He's just a mm. master at it, in my opinion. And Lynn and I tease, and Lynn Trombley is my partner who sings with us from time to time. We always, we always tease Doug when he comes up with something that is really, really, um, uh, you know, very memorable, but also like just on the edge of being, you know, so much of a hook, you can't get it out of your head. She always goes like this, like Celine. She calls it the Celine moment. Yeah. <laughs> Was that Lynn's voice on uh, Miss Meteo? Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, well, yes, Lynn's singing on there, but her mom is the one who's talking on there. Okay. Yeah. This next clip is from the official music video for Miss Meteo with the band Manteca from their album Augmented Indifference, which was released in 2020, and you can check it out on Bandcamp. Demain matin, 11h, puis demain après-midi, 20h. Nicolas, Saint-Nicolas, Saint-Nicolas, Gatineau, fait 8 à Gatineau. On ressent 6 les orages, c'est bateau.
so uh, that's an interesting thing because Miss um, Meteo is um, is what we t- we call her mom, Miss Meteo, because she's always talking about the weather. She loves the weather. She loves looking at the weather. She will get her eye pad in front of her and read us the weather in different parts of the province so she did this one day um, when we had them her and her dad over for for a few days and i heard her reading the the weather and we'd been teasing her for years about being miss mateo so i just turned my iphone on and i recorded her and we never told her until she heard the new record and it was like (laughs) Guys, you got to get together. Let's get together and hear the new record. So we all sat around and it's the first tune on the new record. And we put it on and she was just like completely destabilized. Like, est-ce que c'est moi ça? Tu trouves ça où ça? She had no idea. And it's been very interesting to see because, you know, as an instrumental band, you know, we don't have words in our music. And so lots of people started like trying to figure out what the meaning of that was and how it worked and somebody made a reference somebody thought it was a, a piece about the flq and <laughs> it was crazy it's really fun though but the video you made was sort of about climate change and, yes yeah because when i heard that the first time it really brought me back to i used to listen to radio canada when i was a kid to like for jazz and then they would have the weather all over the province which I always found amusing because it was always pretty similar. Right. Especially in the winter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all these small towns all over. So yes. when I first heard that, that's what it... Well, you know, it, it, it is about climate change and, and that's where we landed with it. And because during that time, when Lynn's mom was reading the weather, she was reading about the flooding, which was just horrific. And we had never seen flooding like that in eastern Canada before. And so... Um, we did a video of that and, and used those images prominently. And the thing that's so interesting about that, kind of musically, that song was very much, um, it was a homage to Weather Report. It's, it's, it's us, you know, Weather Report was a hugely influential group to us. And it's the first time that we really did what we thought of as an homage to them. And... Um, just by complete accident, if you look at that video, there is a frame in that video which looks like the cover of the album called Heavy Weather, Weather Report's very famous, over million selling album. And the video director had no idea. But I was like, stop that frame there. Look at this album cover here. This is the album that we are paying homage to. Look at that frame. And he's just like, oh my God, that's crazy. It was just like, it is so incredibly similar. So, wow. Yeah. And there's another, there's a satirical video you made, which is so clever about streaming. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Busking in Deadwood. Busking in Deadwood, yes. <laughs> well, this whole streaming thing, uh, you know, it's a crime. It's, it's a crime. It's theft. And um, we have to call them out. And... Uh, the only way to really call people out these days, in, in my view, is to do it with a sense of humor. And uh, and so that's what we did. So streaming, you know, busking in Deadwood is what's going to happen to people because the streamers have just basically, they're refusing to pay people. And, and not only is that affecting, uh, you know, 
our livelihoods, but it's also completely erased other streams of revenue that we've had in the past, right? It's like if you give a record, if you give a CD that costs you $50,000 to make to somebody, it's almost like, oh, no, no thanks. You know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't have anything to play that with. So, so you know, yes, there is all this infrastructure to streaming, but at the end of the day, they just don't pay enough. They pay hardly anything. I've had people have, I know people who've had very successful songs and have ended up with $4,000. Yeah. You know. Well, the only music app I have on my phone is Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. And I try to buy, you know, lots of albums. And I, some musicians, independent artists still don't know about Bandcamp. And I've, I've said to them, please get on Bandcamp. Mm -hmm. you, you need to get there. But with Manteca, I got your albums that you have available. And I wrote to you and you said, the other ones, you have to buy the CDs. Why aren't you putting them on Bandcamp as well? It's just a matter of, uh, we will eventually. It's okay. just a matter of, um, there is so much work to do. We, we've just finished shooting a, a series of a streaming concerts. Uh, and that those were so complex and there's just mm -hmm. there's so much to do I mean you, you could have four or five people working full-time on a band's career um, yeah. and and we just don't have the personnel to do that so it's a matter of choice you know it's a matter of eventually that will get done <laughs> mm -hmm. so you have your home office you're used to working out of your home and then this pandemic hit for a lot of people became very new and do you have advice for people in terms of strategies well, I think I do have one piece of advice that, that is extraordinarily important uh, and, and really got Lynn and I through this uh, pandemic. And that is uh, we, our, our creative output did not cease. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it, we kept working. We kept creating. Um, I started the podcast series Yes We Canada during that period. I insanely, I don't know what came over me. I must have had a fever or something, but I insanely made the commitment to do 26 episodes one a week, which was just like, I should have known better. It was an insane amount of work uh, because, you know, each episode was like 17 or 18 minutes, but it wasn't just me talking. I had to write the thing. I had to find, you know, all of the clips that go with it, the sound design, and then I had to send it to the studio for my, my sound designer to do um, and then mix it and then send it back and get it approved. And it was a, it, an enormous amount of work. But it, it certainly was very gratifying to be able to create something at home every week and get it out into the world uh, the next week. Um, and uh, I mean, it cost me money. I didn't make any money on it. But I had the gratification of creating something and getting it to the market. And so I was very much sustained through that creation. And, and not only just the creation, but also getting it, the creation and the distribution getting it out there. That really uh, meant a lot to me. And I know with Lynn, uh, she launched her uh, second album and we did a, a cabaret show at The Loft here. And uh, that was one of the hardest shows I've ever produced in my life because we were in the middle of a pandemic. We were not even allowed to be in the house together. Like we couldn't bring the band in. Yeah. Right? It, that was not legal. Yeah. So uh, we had to sneak them in and it was like just... <laughs> It was crazy difficult to produce a show with, with three musicians and two technicians uh, during a, a pandemic blackout in Montreal. 
because we had a curfew, right? Yeah. So, um, but but doing those things was extraordinarily uplifting for us. So I would just say uh, being able to create and being able to measure your your productivity is very important. Uh, my son said that he rehearsed uh, bluegrass during the um, during the lockdown, and what he would do is he would every day he would turn a notch up on the on the metronome so that he could measure his success at playing a piece at a faster tempo, right? And I yeah. thought that was very smart because it was like, okay, that's precision, right? That's not kind of that's like okay, I nailed that figure at that tempo, good. Mm-hmm. And your other son is a restaurateur. Yes. He owns uh, five restaurants called Lucille's. They are um, a, uh, he's always described it as if you were a redneck and you were born with a silver spoon in your back pocket of your overalls, that's where you'd eat. Because <laughs> it's really good seafood and um, uh, very, he's got a wonderful chef that oversees all five restaurants. Uh, and uh, it's a very successful restaurant, and they're opening another one in Mont Tremblant in uh, February. Good to hear. Yeah, I I was wondering because you grew up part of your um, growing up was on this farm, and you know your mom made cheese, and you're you know eating local produce. If that affected the way you've lived with food, and did you transmit that to your kids growing up? You know, food has been really one of the most important parts of my life for a long time, and um, my mom was a very good cook and uh my brother was a chef and uh so you know we we had you know our relationship with food uh, it was always something very special for us my parents grew up in the depression you know my mom was from a very large family nine people and so you know food uh and family were very very important are very important to us and yeah i think that that is obviously the boys have both both my sons have um, you know, that's been a part of their lives. Their mom was a very good cook too. She still is. And, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot in this family kind of resol- revolves around the dinner table <laughs> mm-hmm. where we would never listen to Manteca because it's not good music to dine by. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of the band, um, I was, I know you, you had the tragic loss of a, your trumpet player, Rick. Mm-hmm, Rick Tate, yes. Yeah. Uh, Rick um, died uh, when he was 49 years old of uh, cancer. And uh, he was one of our principal composers and our trumpet player and our keyboard player and somebody that we loved so dearly. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that... Uh, He's really been with us very closely in the last few months because his daughter played on our new record. Uh, and uh, when Rick was alive, he did, she was not a musician. And, okay. and she's, she's released a couple of records. She's got a band that was very big in Japan to the point where she, she told us during the session that we just did that there are... There are um, cover bands there's a cover okay. band of her band in japan <laughs> yeah so anyway so yeah so rick was a he was a huge influence on us in terms of writing uh we still do one of his tunes to this day and probably will always do that tune 
Um, it's called Perfect Foot, and it was written about Joe Mendelssohn, or Mendelssohn Joe, as he's known. And, um, you know, Rick's influence is uh, still part of what we do today, which is like, we've found out what we're going to, we've redefined our brand recently. And uh, Manteca is um, jazz adjacent heavy metal wannabe. <laughs> That's us. There's a genre. <laughs> There's our own genre. There ain't nobody yeah. else in there but us. Okay, jazz adjacent heavy metal wannabe. Yep, that's what it is. One thing we didn't talk about was crowdfunding, because I know you crowdfunded um, Monday Night at the Mensa, what's it called? Monday the Night Mensa at the Mensa Disco, Disco yeah. Disco, which I love that album. Oh, too. thank you so much. <laughs> uh, crowdfunding, uh, you know, it's like a lot of things. It, it, when it first came out, it was very uh, alive and exciting, and people were like, hey, this could work, this could work. But... I think through time, people have got tired of it. There's so many people asking for money these days. People are exhausted. It's like, I can't give anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. So we haven't used that format for funding for some time. I would be very reticent to go back to it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it makes perfect sense when you're touring and you, you have a, a, the infrastructure to set up things where people get free tickets to shows, they get t-shirts, they get sweat, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But it gets harder and harder when you don't have that infrastructure and, and then you have to, you know, get your packages delivered to people and create packages that will make them be excited about helping you out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when we when we first started that, I guess that would have been 12, 20, 2013 or something like that, that, that we kind of funded that record. It was a very viable way of funding things, but it's, I don't think it is anymore. Yeah. And do you think for more established musicians, it might put you in a perceived position of weakness in terms of your reach? Well, you know, look, that's, that's always a dilemma, right? I mean, you're trying to present to your public that you are a success, but in actual fact, you are scrounging around. Uh, if you're a Canadian artist, you're scrounging around to make ends meet. And, um, you know, so you're always in that conundrum. Right. And I mean, you know, perception is not reality when it comes to there's a slate of handouts, slate of hand out there. You know, it's like uh, it's it's a real challenge. Um, but I mean, you know, uh, the challenge of being an artist in Canada is is that, you know, you have to get outside of this country in order to to have a career that blossoms. And that that is critically important. Um, you cannot rely on the geographic and population base that Canada has. Yeah, I was going to say, we have such a small population spread out yeah. so far. It makes touring very difficult, right? Very difficult, and, and perhaps now more than ever because gas has gone up and concert, concert offers have gone down, right? Yeah. It's, it's like there's, the market is so flooded with artists that, you know, I have, I have, sometimes I have promoters offering us less money than they offered us in 1992. Oof. And yeah. you go, well, hang on a second here. Gas and hotel prices and per diems and all those costs have gone up. How is it you can potentially offer us less money than you offered us the last time we played for you? Have we gotten worse? I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's the scruffy side of the business that we don't like to discuss. Well... It's, it's reality. Yes. 
we started this conversation, we're talking quite a bit about your family and your, it's interesting, your, um, your dad, I mean, he hung on to these precious negatives that became very famous when he finally developed them, a very famous people. And what kind of perspectives did your dad teach you and, and your mom too, you know, in terms of your success in life and your way of approaching your career? You know, they were both very professional in their work. Uh, they took it very seriously, you know, and they um, uh, they were very dedicated to it. Um, and uh, I think that that kind of innovation that they had, they were they were both innovators in their world. They were they took chances. They, my mother, you know, she was very early adapter of computers or an early adapter of uh, blogging. Um, you know, my father was a very early adapter of the 35mm camera, you know. So they were always willing to uh, go into places where not a lot of people had been before and uh, that was very uh, encouraging. And they were both excellent writers. I mean, my parents were both, you know, really well they were well read, but they had a very great conversational tone in the way that they wrote. And I really learned a lot from that. That really, really helped me in so many ways. Beyond that, I mean, they were just always very supportive. They were always very helpful to me. I could always bring them my projects and they would give me their opinions. My mother and I used to have a joke. She had a, for, for a period of time, I was writing pieces for the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail. And, and if she liked them, I knew they wouldn't get published, and if she didn't like them, I knew they would get published, and it was I would always tease her about that, because <laughs> she she had some problems with my sense of humor at times. <laughs> oh, good, you didn't like it. That means I'll probably get I'll probably get picked up. But anyway, so yeah, I learned a tremendous amount from them, and to be in a family of uh, freelance artists, I mean, you you learn a way of life in that environment, and the way of life that you learn is that. You know, we never have much money, but we, you know, always eat well and we always figure out ways to get it done and we're always very responsible with money. You have to be responsible with money. You know, my mother used to say, she goes, oh, these bankers, you know, you'd go to a bank, try to get a bank loan and they wouldn't give it to you because you're an artist. And she's like, are you kidding me? You think we're going to default on something because we're artists? We're the ones that are, have learned how to put together something from nothing. I mean... Uh, you got to be worried about the guy who's got the job in an office and then suddenly loses that job. That's who you should be worried about mm -hmm. because that's the guy that's going to default on his mortgage, not us. The, the lessons that you learn uh, in a freelance family are that, you know, live life to its fullest, figure out how to pay for it later, do it responsibly, right? Those, yeah. are, good life, those are good life lessons. Those are lessons that put you on a path to living well, right? Mm -hmm. Earlier in this conversation, you referred to professional musicians. And something that often comes up with my guests is I hesitate to make those um, separations because, like yourself, a lot of the income you've learned earned has not been from performing as a musician. It's been doing broadcast media and working as a TV executive and stuff. But you are a professional musician. You know what I mean? And well, for a long time in my career, I was a musician and and a music producer, and that's kind of at a certain point, 
I started doing more production and artistic direction outside of the realm of music. Yeah. Um, and um, throughout all of that period, I still consider myself a professional musician. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, producing and artistic directing, uh, they use so many musical skills unto themselves. So much of what I do has to do with, you know, A&R and music selection and and and, and definitely um, uh, commissioning music and stuff like that. So uh, it's you're not a player at that point, but you're still a musician. And uh, I've surrounded myself with musicians when I go to do other jobs as well because mm -hmm. I, I think musicians have so many skills um, that, you know, um, we're producing this streaming series called Road Stories. Um, everybody on that is, is it, they're in the band, right? They're, yeah. But they're also producers, right? And it's been really a pleasure to, to have those experiences with those people um, because everybody brings so much to it that it's been so gratifying. Well, my question about this, Matt, I think was that if you had been given another life path, if you could go back and say, you know, you'll only be playing percussion full time, which, you know, not even teaching, you'll just have this thing where you can just constantly be making records and being on the road. Would you have chosen that over what's been so far a very interesting life with so many different strands of creativity? No, I don't think so. Um, uh, you know, I would like to be... Uh, broader in my percussion playing abilities. I would like to be a better percussionist. But I think that there's a part of me that really enjoys these other, these other things that I do, like uh, writing words, uh, like creating shows. I find it very gratifying to do that. I find writing this podcast to be extraordinarily fun. Um, so I really get tremendous gratification from these uh, other activities. Uh, I mean, playing with Manteca, I mean, I could do that full time for sure because it, 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 it incorporates so many of those other things, you know. We put together a show, we have a technical crew, we have, there's, there's art to that creation as well, which we all enjoy so much. Uh, we interact with the audience. There's like, there's a lot of things that I could, I think I could be happy touring with Manteca but um, uh, full time. But these other these other things that I do, uh, they, they really bring me such great pleasure uh, and have taught me so much that I wouldn't I wouldn't want to not have those things in my life. Those are mm -hmm. very, there for a very specific reason. Reason. Well, thanks so much for your time today and sharing your your perspectives and your great stories. Well, thank you so much for your extraordinarily detailed research and kind uh, interviewing skills. Thank you. <laughs> you really did your homework. Well, maybe it comes from insecurity, you know, I <laughs> want to make sure. No, it comes from professionalism. <laughs> and I, I look forward to, uh, to, to seeing your podcast and hearing your podcast. Um, because I, I've been so busy with this series that we've been doing that I haven't j had a chance to jump in and, and see any of your other guests. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to diving in. I trust you found Matt's perspectives interesting 
And if you missed my episodes with fellow Manteca band members, Colleen Allen and Mark Ferguson, please give them a listen. Thanks for following this podcast. Please consider buying me a virtual coffee. The link is in the description. Have a great week.